All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning uh, for the gift of knowing you. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have answered like, the prayer that's, that's embedded in the song that we just sang. Um, God, we thank you for the reality that you have come close to us, uh, that the giving of your word is evidence of that. So Lord, we pray that as we engage with this text this morning, uh, that we would sense your presence, uh, that we would be attentive to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Father, may he do a work. And may he point us to Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the, the ways that we tend to judge elite athletes is by their performance at the end of the game. We praise those not, who are not only able to get off to a good start, but those who know how to finish well. Who cares if you had a great first quarter if you can't come through in the fourth, right, when the game is on the line? We've got a whole category for players who come through in those key situations, right? We call them clutch players, and we all want to be a clutch player. Uh, even now in, in my 30s with my glory days far behind, uh, not that they were particularly glorious to begin with, uh, even now if I am out shooting a basketball and I, and I happen to be by myself, for my last shot, I always, always, always have a buzzer beater type scenario running through my head, and I cannot leave until I have made that final shot. We all care about finishing well, and that truth goes far beyond the world of sports. And the less time we have, the more urgency we feel. The less time we have, the more focused we need to be. Well, Peter begins our passage this morning with a rather jarring declaration, right? <laughs> he warns, the end of all things is at hand. Welcome to church. What he's telling us is that Christians, this is the fourth quarter. And he then goes on to describe the impact that that reality ought to have on the way that we live. Right? This truth ought to give us a unique focus a gospel focus. So this morning, we're going to look closely at two things. First, the reality and nearness of the end. And second, how we should live in light of the end. All right, so we're going to begin with the reality and nearness of the end. So let's look at that starting, startling declaration in verse 7. The very beginning of it says, "...the end of all things is at hand." Now, up until somewhat recently, our culture has had a tendency to look at claims like this and assume that the ones making such claims are just like whacked in the head, right? that they are crazy, that they are out of their mind. But interestingly, doomsday claims are becoming more mainstream, aren't they? They're becoming more acceptable. As we take stock of world events, political polarization around the globe, uh, environmental degradation, right, there is a looming sense of despair. Uh, one of the movies that was nominated for Best Picture last year was Netflix's Don't Look Up, which was about a meteor strike with the potential to end life on Earth that no one took seriously. 
The movie was satirical, and the meteor was a stand-in for impending environmental disaster. The message was, we're all doomed, and to not take it seriously is crazy. Uh, There's another example I came across even more recently. Uh, There's a podcast uh, that I've started listening to. It's called Rise of the Newts. Strange, I know, and it only gets stranger. Uh, This podcast is an audio drama inspired by the famous Czech author Carol Schopek's work, uh, War with the Newts which told a story about a hostile takeover of um, a race of anthropomorphic salamanders. Uh, It, too, was a satire. It was a satire of science without ethics, of runaway capitalism, fascism, journalism, militarism, even Hollywood. He's taken all sorts of things to task. Why bring this up? Not because I care about newts. Uh, I'm bringing this up because there is a growing sense, even in our culture, that taking life seriously entails reckoning with the end. Well, this is a message that the Bible supports, not the message about newts, mind you, but we need to take seriously, according to Scripture, the reality of the end. And we see this in the rest of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What Peter is saying here is that the realization that the end of all things is at hand should cause us to think very clearly. We are to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And that word translated self-controlled is actually the Greek word sophroneo, which means to be of sound mind. There it is. Which means to be of sound mind, to be in one's right mind, to be sane. The same word is used in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke 8 where we read the story of the Gerasene demoniac. The Gerasene demoniac was a man uh, demented and possessed by demons. He lived out in the hills among the tombs in a region north of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that night and day he would wander through the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. But then he had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus' power came upon him and healed him. He cast out the legion of demons that was afflicting him. And once that happened, we are told that he was found in Mark 5.15, seated, clothed, which is a, a fun little detail. It implies that before he was unclothed, seated, clothed, and in his right mind. At the last description is the same word that Peter uses in verse 7. See, what Jesus did for this man was he lifted the fog that existed around his poor mind He could now be in touch with reality, to see see things as they truly were. This, in fact, is what sanity is, to be in touch with reality. To be crazy is to be completely out of touch, to not know or not care about the way that things actually are. So what then is this sobering reality that we need to be in touch with, according to Peter? That the end is at hand. And the end that we need to contemplate, the end that we need to take seriously, isn't an end caused by a meteor or environmental disaster, an evil dictator, or a race of killer newts. The end that will help us to think clearly 
The end that will help us to think sanely is the coming of our God as judge. See, if there really is a God and there are moral absolutes, which everyone ultimately clings to, right? even those who claim to be moral relativists, we see them up in arms about all sorts of different things. Right? So if there is a God and there are moral absolutes, which there are, then there has to be a reckoning. There has to be. There's too much injustice and pain in the world for there not to be. And if there's going to be a reckoning, to live as though there won't be is crazy. You can think of it this way. Let's say that you're an accountant, which for some of you may not be in a stretch. We'd have some accountants in this room. It is your job to make sure that your company's books are in order. But one day you realize, I'm not really getting a lot of oversight and I can kind of just let things slide. And you realize a little bit later on, I'm really getting no oversight and I can... I can take a little bit off the top for myself. And so you're engaging in a little bit of you know, light embezzlement. But then all of a sudden you hear that tomorrow an auditor is coming. And what do you do? What does a sane person do in that situation? Well, they do their best to get, book, to get the books right, to give back whatever money that they've taken, right? to make sure that their house is in order. It would be insane to continue on in the same way, insisting that auditors don't exist. So the question for us is, are our books in order? Are we living in touch with reality? Do we believe God's word that there will be a reckoning? And are we living? Are we living accordingly? Now, one of the joys of being a Christian is that we don't need to live in fear of judgment day. We don't fear punishment. Because Jesus has taken on the punishment that our sin deserves. He's taken that on himself. But we don't want to meet the one who declares, I will never leave you or forsake you. The one who says, I laid down my life for you and did it. We don't want to meet the one who says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We don't want to meet him having lived anything short of a life of gratitude. We don't want to meet him having lived a thoughtless life, one that didn't recognize that we were in the fourth quarter. So again, are you living as though the end is near, as though the buzzer is about to sound? Are you living a gospel-focused life, living in touch with ultimate reality? Now, a quick note on the nearness of the end. Peter insisted that the end was near when he wrote this letter, likely around 62 or 63 AD. This means that the end has been near for 1,959 or 1,960 years. This is a very long fourth quarter. So I think it's natural for people to question, was Peter wrong when he made this declaration that the end was near? And the answer is no. Peter just has a very different view of history. According to one scholar, rather than thinking of world history in terms of earthly kings and kingdoms, Peter thinks in terms of redemptive history. From this perspective, all of the previous acts in the drama of redemption have been completed. Creation, fall, redemption, and all that remains now is that last great act, consummation which will come with the return of Jesus and the renewal of all things. 
Now, we can trust that this last act is coming despite our perception of its delay because of Jesus' faithfulness in fulfilling all of the previous acts. He did come, as was foretold. He died and rose again as he said he would. None of those things happened in accordance with human expectations or timetables, but they did happen. He remained faithful. And this last act, consummation, which brings restoration and glorification, is the end of all things. And the Greek word translated end here in verse 7 is actually the word telos, which means goal. Christ's return is the ultimate goal of all creation. The thing that all of creation looks to and longs for. The end is at hand. Which means that right now, everything matters. And that our deepest hopes and longings will be fulfilled. So friends, do you recognize that? Is that truth animating you, compelling you, leading you to live in reality? Or are there other things that are distracting you? I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm convicted by that last question in large part because I like my life. I love my family. I love this church. You know, I love the, the, the gift of, of getting to live in a place like this. You know, this is a weekend in which we are celebrating the gift of, of our freedom in this country, and that is a tremendous gift. But not only do we get to live in this country, we get to live in a place where we can go outside like every day, right? minus the five days a year where it rains. I, my, my son Oliver, we have, we've got a, a smart speaker, and uh, it's an Apple product, so if you talk to it, you have to say, hey Siri. Okay. Um, so you have, to, you have to say those two words, and my son, just about every day before he gets dressed, will say those two words, not to disrupt my devices up here, um, and will ask, what's the weather? And I'm just waiting for her to respond. It's the same as it was yesterday, and it will be the same tomorrow. Like, that, that itself, though, like, that is a gift. Like, have you taken the time to notice how beautiful our surrounding area is? By God's grace, we get to enjoy a whole lot of wonderful things in this life. But we can't let these good things distract us from the ultimate thing, the goal of creation, the day when, as we sing in that, that beautiful hymn, it is well, when our faith will be sight. Right, we should declare, we should sing with all our, mar- all our might, Lord, haste that day, because it's in that day When the end has come, there will be no more mourning or crying or pain when justice will truly reign. Friends, the end of all things is at hand. We are in the fourth quarter, and that is a good thing. Well, now I want to ask the question, if the end is near, how then should we live? How should we live in light of the end? Well, thankfully, in the verses that follow, Peter gets pretty practical in his instruction. Uh, In light of the end, he tells us that we are to live lives of love, hospitality, and service. 
So we'll begin by focusing on love. In light of the end, Peter instructs us that we are to love one another earnestly. In verse 8, he writes this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The first response to a realization that the end is near. In fact, not only the first response, but the most important, indicated by the words, above all, is love. We are to love one another, and we are to do so earnestly. That word translated earnestly could also mean eagerly or fervently. This is a helpful reminder. Now, we live in a society that talks a lot about love, which is good. But when we talk about it, we we often do so in largely passive terms. Love is pictured as something that that happens to us, which is... uh, (laughs) <laughs> and, and, we're, and as a result, we are portrayed as having little or no control over it, right? We, we fall in love. There's nothing more accidental than falling. We speak this way largely because we, we, we tend to think of love as a feeling or an emotion primarily. Right? In such an emotion, it can't be conjured up. We can't produce it with the push of a button. We don't decide to fall in love with someone. We don't decide to feel a certain way oftentimes. But the Bible talks about love in far more active terms. It functions more like a verb than a noun. Love is a duty. It's an action that we are called to perform. Like God commands us to love our parents, to love our spouse, to love our neighbors, to love even our enemies. God's command to love is not a call to conjure up certain feelings or even to like everything about a person, but we are to act in a loving manner towards everyone. And the New Testament uses two Greek words for love. There's phileo and agape. There are two other Greek words for love, and I know some of the Greek nerds in our congregation are giving themselves an aneurysm right now. It's like, you're forgetting to. I'm not. Um, There's also eros, which refers to erotic or sexual love, and storge, which refers to familial love. Those are Greek words for love, but they're not in the New Testament, so it's okay. Calm down. All right. The New Testament words for love are, uh, I'm going to get myself confused now, are phileo and agape. Now, phileo, we talked about a few weeks back when we looked at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. That word phileo is often translated as brotherly love. It's the word from which we, get the, we derive the name for the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But there's another kind of love denoted by the word agape, which is the word that Peter uses here in this verse. It's of a different nature than the other types of love in the Greek language. And it's of a different nature because it is devoid of self-interest. Phileo, eros, storge, they're all forms of love, but there is something to be gained by their demonstration. Now, these loves aren't bad or wrong because we stand to gain from them, but they're not agape. See, agape proceeds out of a heart of care and concern for others not the self. Agape love, according to one scholar, is patient and kind. It neither boasts nor envies. This is the love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not proud, rude, or self-seeking, or easily angered. It is quick to forgive. 
It seeks the good and the true. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres always. It never fails. That is agape. The love that Peter is calling us to show here is more than a mere emotion. It is active. It has hands and feet. It's not a theory. Therefore, it is not safe or free of risk. Love that lives only in our heads doesn't require anything from us, but it also doesn't change anything. Agape love, on the other hand, it does things. Agape love encourages, it hugs, it prays, it cries, it sings, and it does so for the benefit of the other. See, we're not being called here to feel a certain way. Because in many instances, we're not capable of controlling our feelings, but we can control our actions. Our love is meant to mirror the selfless love of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And we are called to love one another earnestly, which means that we need to love each other tangibly. As John writes in 1 John 3:18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, what does that look like in action? How is that demonstrated? Well, it is demonstrated in hospitality. Peter goes on, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. One theologian writes, earnest love which seeks the good of others before one's own finds practical expression in hospitality. Christians are called to love one another by sharing what we have. We're called to see our possessions not as our own, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of His kingdom. How do we love? How do we show hospitality? We invite others in. We share our things and our lives. And friends, this is a powerful witness to a watching world. The writer Rosario Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which I think is a fantastic title, that the gospel comes with a house key. She writes, when our Christian homes are open, we make transparent to a watching world what Christ is doing with our bodies, our families, and our world. For Christians to maintain an authentic Christian witness to a world that mistrusts us at the very least, we must be transparently hospitable. So consider, how are you using what God has given you to further, to advance his kingdom? See, many people are are hesitant to demonstrate hospitality because they feel as though they don't have enough, but that's simply not true. Hospitality requires that we share what we have, and that's all. The 20th century missionary and theologian East Stanley Jones has a a rather interesting story of hospitality from a time when he was preaching in rural Kentucky. He says that one day after he was done speaking, this is him speaking, he says, I was invited to stay with a man and his wife, and when I arrived, I saw that there was only one bed. The husband said, you take the far side. Then he got in, and then his wife I turned to face the wall as they dressed, and they stepped out while I dressed. That was real hospitality. I I, I like the the, the heart of what he was talking about. I'm I'm not recommending that, though. Like, like don't share your bed with anyone but your spouse. Some things should be sacred. Uh, But 
Everything else should be up for grabs. Hospitality doesn't require that we have a lot, but it requires us to be generous with what we do have. And I think that that's a message that we need to hear as, as folks living in South Orange County. It can be easy for us to feel, despite the, the perhaps known reality that we have far more than most people in the world, but living where we live, it is easy for us to look around and see that that person has more and that person has more and what I have doesn't seem to measure up to what everyone else has. And we can think that what we possess isn't quite enough, that we're somehow not worthy, but that is not at all all the case. God has blessed us. He has blessed every single person in this room, and He has done so so that we might bless others to work to further His kingdom. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Your stuff is not your own. It's a gift of God's grace that He is calling you to steward for His glory and for the good of others. So how are you being hospitable with what you have? Who have you had in your home lately? Maybe challenge yourself. It's the beginning of a new month. Try to have someone new in your house at some point this month. Take an opportunity to show agape, selfless love. Give and expect nothing in return. And if you're in a stage of life where you don't have your own space yet, you're not exempted from this command. You can be hospitable with a dorm room. You can be hospitable with your friend group, you know, being quick to, to make other people feel welcome and a part of things. You can be hospitable by taking someone out to lunch or to coffee. You can be hospitable with your invitations, with whatever resources you have. Hospitality doesn't require us to have a lot. It simply requires us to share what God has given us. Now, the practice of hospitality can be tough, it can be draining. It can be messy. It doesn't always align with our expectations. But this is our calling. God commands it, and He commands that we engage in it without grumbling. John Calvin, in his commentary, notes how hard this can be. He says it's rare that one spends himself and his own on his neighbor without any disparaging reflection. But even though it can be hard, There is so much joy to be found in the practice of following God's commands. And I think this is particularly true when it comes to demonstrating hospitality. It's not always easy, but it is good. It is life-giving. All right, so we are called to live lives of love, hospitality, and lastly, we are called to live lives of service. We're going to close by looking at verses 10 and 11 here. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are called to live lives of love, We are called to be hospitable, and we are called to use our gifts to serve one another. Verse 10 affirms that each Christian has received a gift. Every person in this room who belongs to Jesus has been given a gift to use to serve the kingdom of God. 
And there are two categories of gifts that, that uh, Peter mentions here. These aren't the only two categories, but these are the two that he calls out. He talks about gifts of speech or teaching and gifts of service. And again, he affirms that every single one of us has a gift, and we are to be stewards of those gifts. We're to be stewards of God's varied grace. And as stewards, we need to recognize that the, that the gifts that we have, just like our things, They don't belong to us. They're not our own. God wants us to use our abilities for others. And when we do so, we fulfill our created end. We glorify Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. So I think it's worth considering for a moment, what gifts has God given you? How has he blessed you? How might he be calling you to use those gifts for your good, for the good of others, and for his glory? How can you be using your talents for his kingdom? If you are in Christ, you have received a spiritual gift, and you are called to steward it well. So then recognizing that the end is at hand, that we are in the fourth quarter, we have work to do. Everything matters. And in light of that reality, we need to get to work. Living lives of love, hospitality, and service. Not to earn something, but in light of the grace that we have received. We move forward in love, hospitality, and service, seeking to honor and follow Jesus, the embodiment of all of these virtues. Jesus shows us what agape love looks like. He demonstrated genuine hospitality. He didn't have a place to lay his head, but everything he did have, he gave liberally to others. He lived a life of service. And we see these virtues on display in Jesus' powerful statement about himself, which I've already mentioned in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, what a beautiful summary of the gospel. Jesus, who deserves our service, came and he served, even to the point of death, so that we could have life. And it's the beauty of the gospel that captivates and compels us to demonstrate to a watching world the love, hospitality, and service that we've received to the glory of Jesus, the giver. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this important reminder that we are in the end, that everything matters, that despite our perception of the delay of the end of all things, God, it is coming, and you have a desire to use us for your kingdom in the meantime. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would apply the gospel to our hearts in really powerful ways. God, help us to know that we are completely known and truly loved by you. Lord, despite our sin, despite our failure, despite our shortcomings, You have called us your children. Father, help us to know that in our bones. 
And may that truth then push us out, compel us to live lives of love, hospitality, and service. Father, we ask that we would be able to have an impact for your kingdom in these last days, God. Help us to be clear-headed, to be sober-minded, to be mindful of this truth. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.